Good morning, everyone. Happy Tuesday after Labor Day in Las Vegas at 7 a.m. Uh, thank you for coming. This course is BHV-01, titled Crisis Equals Opportunity, Reducing Medication Burden While Managing Chronic Pain. Our faculty today includes Dr. Jennifer Ha and Dr. Ravi Prasad. Both speakers hail from the Department of Anesthesiology, Perioper Perioperative and Pain Management, excuse me, Pain Medicine at Stanford University, where Dr. Ha is an instructor and Dr. Prasad is a clinical associate professor, respectively. Please help me welcome our distinguished speakers today. Good morning. Hi, everybody. Thank you again so much for coming. I know that you probably wouldn't be sitting in that chair unless this wasn't an important topic to you. And it is really an important topic to myself and Dr. Prasad. So hopefully we can go over um, this topic and give you some new tips and techniques for helping your patients to convince them to get off of their pain medications and also to give them some tools and techniques for managing their pain long term. Just a few disclosures, I do have a little bit of funding from the National Institute on Drug Abuse and no other disclosures. I will be going into some off-label drug uh, product use, which I'll mention during the lecture. So briefly, our objectives today are to cover what are the emerging and evolving guidelines, the professional guidelines and indications for opioid tapering, and then we'll parlay into what is the current evidence base? How do we actually get our patients off of their medications? that's going to be a really important step. So we have a lot of patients, probably this is a clinical scenario you often encounter. You have a patient coming into your office who says, yeah, okay, sure, I'll try to come off my medications, but you're gonna have to give me something in return. And so what is that something in return? And Dr. Prasad is really gonna help us fill that gap today. So we all know prescription opioids are the leading cause of overdose deaths in the United States currently. And we've seen that substance abuse treatment admissions, prescription opioid sales, and drug overdose deaths have climbed dramatically over the last decade. And this cost of non-medical prescription opioid use is even over $50 billion annually just in the United States alone. But I don't want to give you too much of a jaded picture. I want to give you what are the latest statistics coming out from the CDC. Because as providers, we're getting a lot of flack in terms of appropriate opioid prescribing, over-prescribing of opioids, but what are we seeing in the last couple of years? So yes, if you see here this line that says commonly prescribed opioids, so this would be our hydrocodone, oxycodone, and whatnot, we see that, yes, that is still the leading cause of overdose deaths in the United States, but somewhat since about 2011 or so, that line is kind of stabilizing. So I want to say cautiously, maybe some of our efforts to curb this epidemic are actually working. What I think is more concerning, though, is this uh, very steep blue line. This is representing heroin overdose deaths. And we've seen a 20% increase since 2014. And if we look at other synthetic opioids below, that was a 70% increase, a sharp increase since 2014. And so I think probably the folks on the East Coast are encountering this more often. And we're seeing this wave coming across the country hitting the Midwest, we're kind of more towards the West Coast here in Las Vegas, and especially uh, Dr. Prasad and I are out in California. 
And so, you know, it's going to take a little bit more time for this wave to hit us, but probably if these statistics continue, this heroin and illicit fentanyl crisis is likely to take over the prescription opioid overdose deaths. And just to drive this point home, we see here a graph of the number of reported law enforcement encounters where uh, people are testing positive for fentanyl. And so why? Why fentanyl? Why is it not the heroin of the 70s? What is making this stuff so lethal? Well, there is a key precursor ingredient. This is called NPP. And so just 25 grams of this medication can be bought in places and countries where this uh, sale of this chemical is not regulated for about $87. And voila, after a little bit of chemical processing, this can turn into $800,000 worth of street value. So that is a great profit margin. And what's really scary is the newer fentanyl derivatives. So fentanyl is much, much stronger than morphine and milligram equivalents. But then you have derivatives like carfentanil. Even just a grain of salt of this medication can cause an overdose. So we all know prescription opioids have a number of related adverse effects. Tolerance meaning we're going to need to treat with higher doses of opioid to get the same effect the phenomenon of physical dependence. And this is really a, an important barrier for patients when they're trying to get off of their opioids. They're really worried about what this withdrawal syndrome is going to look like. Uh, patients can have immunosuppression, opioid-induced endocrinopathy in the form of decreased testosterone. And the primary mechanism of opioid-induced fatality would be the respiratory depression. And as an anesthesiologist, we see this progression from hypoxia, hypercapnia, and ultimately to cardiorespiratory arrest. One of the things that we need to keep in mind with our patients, who is going to be at risk for a prescription opioid-related overdose? Uh, there are some pre-existing conditions, medical conditions, pulmonary disease, use of uh, sedatives just like benzodiazepines that can worsen the respiratory depression. So any of these factors should put us on a little bit greater alert for patients being at risk for opioid-induced respiratory depression. So I just wanted to put an aside. So this lecture is about decreasing medications, but one of the things that may be a temporary or interim solution is the use of a naloxone as a rescue agent. We don't quite know what the impact of opioid overdose education and naloxone distribution will be, but I wanted to just show you two pictures of what is available for first responders, for family members, for uh, spouses, friends, whatnot, to help in the event of an opioid-induced respiratory depression. And so the picture on the left is Evzio. This is a naloxone subcutaneous formulation. And on the right, you see Narcan nasal spray. And so in the beginning, for example, with Evzio, this came out on the market as a 0.4 milligram dose. And they immediately had to increase that to 2 milligrams. Same with Narcan nasal spray. Initially, it came out as a 2 milligram dose. Now it's a 4 milligram dose. And so I'll refer you back to the initial graph with the rising uh, overdose death rates of illicit fentanyl. And so what our first responders are starting to see is, yes, 10, even 12 doses of these medications uh, is not reversing the opioid-induced respiratory depression. There is a possibility of polypharmacy there. Maybe they're not exactly treating the opioid-induced respiratory depression. But again, this is something that we might want to consider as a temporizing measure, especially when we've seen somebody uh, have a near-fatal uh, opioid overdose event. 
So what do we know about prescription opioids? We see that there are increased rates of substance abuse and depression in long-term prescription opioid users compared to those who prefer not to treat their pain with opioids. And depression and anxiety, mental health issues, contribute to these substance use disorders. And ultimately, what's really concerning to me is that pain intensity does not necessarily predict uh, treatment with opioids versus non-opioid analgesics. And if we refer back to our World Health Organization ladder, we know that usually we're supposed to start with non-opioid agents, maybe Tylenol, maybe NSAIDs, and then with increased pain intensity, we are theoretically supposed to be prescribing these opioids. But what our data shows us is not necessarily true. Uh, in this study, this is a statewide retrospective cohort study of Oregon residents. They looked at what are the risk factors for patients who are initially opioid naive becoming long-term users. They find that about 5% of the patients who are opioid naive ultimately became long-term prescription opioid users. And uh, precursors were, risk factors were the number of fills. So the more number of fills, the higher amount of cumulative morphine equivalents during the first month were associated with long-term use. The other thing was initiating with long-acting opioids, your MS-contins, your OxyContins, methadone. That also had a higher risk of long-term use. And so what are the take-home points from this study? What we want to do is try to limit automatic refills. Obviously, you know, you're usually prescribing month to month, 30 days, but it is possible if you want to do a shorter window, maybe every two weeks, that's fine too. Uh, try to curb dosages rather than just increasing the dose every time the patient comes back. Really making sure that all of the non-opioid strategies have been optimized. Are they doing their physical therapy? Are they involved with a pain psychologist? Have we used all of our non-opioid adjuvants? Have they gone through uh, enough trials? And really careful prescribing. When we cross that threshold into prescribing the longer-acting oxycontins or MS-contins, is this really indicated for this patient? Are they really showing some functional gains? So perhaps as clinicians, we may be creating an atmosphere of persistent opioid use, which may lead to non-medical use and ultimately addiction. But really, where is the data? So I wanted to show you this uh, interesting study. This was published by Banerjee and his colleagues in addiction in November of 2016. This was a prospective multi-site observational study of about 3,400 veterans. And these were veterans who did not have any lifetime opioid misuse, heroin use, or opioid use disorder at baseline. And they followed them for 10 years, so a whole decade. And what they found was that non-medical prescription opioid use was associated positively and independently with heroin initiation. A really important study to show us that the initiation of misuse of, of prescription opioids that may be prescribed therapeutically can actually transition to the, uh, the more illicit, perhaps even uh, more dangerous heroin or illicit fentanyl. And hopefully we'll have more data as, as research continues. Again, this was done from 2010, 2002 to 2012, which is prior to the sharp increase that I had shown you in the first graph. So are we placing patients at risk? So the real rates of addiction might be as high as 10% following a legitimate prescription opioid exposure. So anytime we pick up our prescription pad or we're doing an e-prescribing of an opioid, it's really important to remember, you know, is it really worth that risk? Is there a benefit there for our patients? 
and 30 to 80 percent of addicts say that they were initially given uh, opioids for pain by a physician that they later went on to abuse. So a real vulnerable point. So we know opioids for chronic non-cancer pain uh, have been prescribed uh, very broadly for a number of indications. There are systematic reviews of RCTs that show some moderately improved pain functioning and disabilities comparing opioids versus placebo. There's a variety of indications. I've talked about the adverse effects, but why this discrepancy? We see here that the quoted rates of addiction in these studies is only about 0.14 to 0.27%. There's a couple issues with these studies. So there's a lot of attrition. If you have a patient who develops an opioid-related adverse effect, say constipation, they're not going to want to stay in the study. They're not going to want to continue to take their medication. So a lot of those patients will drop out. The other issue is if the opioids don't have an effect, we lose those patients too. And on top of it, with a lot of these randomized controlled trials, we're not talking about 10 years of follow-up. We might be talking about maybe four to six months of follow-up and also variability in how uh, that addiction behavior is measured. And so I think this is leading to some of the discrepancies we're seeing. So hopefully we get uh, some continued good prospective longitudinal observational studies to, to complement you know, what really happens with patients if we prescribe these opioids therapeutically? When do they transition to misuse? When do they transition to addiction? So what's the data for opioid tapering? So I like to cite this data for my patients. When you have a patient who's maybe on the fence about coming off of their medications, maybe they have a reason to come off of their medications, but they're scared, I like to reassure them that uh, detoxification, whether or not it's done inpatient or outpatient, the results are comparable, so they're not missing out if they don't get into our inpatient program per se. And if uh, inpatient or outpatient pain rehabilitation programs are used, usually the outcomes are going in the right direction. So we say improvements in pain, increases in functioning, and improvements in mood in the form of decreased uh, depression, decreased catastrophizing. And so I think this is really important for patients to know that there's actually data out there that we can get you off of your opioids. You may not know, you may not understand how you will end up feeling, but you actually oftentimes will feel better than you do feel now on your chronic opioids. So what are the guidelines for initiating opioid uh, therapy? We want to do a thorough patient evaluation and adequate risks and benefits discussion and begin with a trial of opioid therapy, and that's really a key. I think a lot of patients think once they get a prescription that they're going to continue on this medication forever, but really stressing up front that there are some parameters. We're looking for some actual functional benefit here. So what are the indications for opioid tapering? So these are the APS and AAPM guidelines regarding opioid tapering. So they state that clinicians should evaluate patients engaging in aberrant drug-related behaviors for appropriateness of chronic opioid therapy or need of restructuring of therapy and referral for assistance in management or discontinuation of chronic opioid therapy. And those who really engage in repeated aberrant behaviors or drug abuse or di diversion or don't have any progress towards their goals or experience intolerable adverse effects. Those would all be appropriate categories to bring up the opioid tapering conversation. 
And just as I mentioned in the data that I showed you, this can be done either inpatient or outpatient. Um, and sometimes we need to enforce a weaning if, if patients have continued um, aberrant behavior, but we really try to engage patients and get them on board with our plan rather than coming from a punitive perspective. So a lot of the data on how quickly to taper opioids is fairly anecdotal, and this is acknowledged in professional guidelines. And one of the key messages, though, is that we want to slow our taper down. So at greater than 200 milligrams per day morphine equivalents, that initial weaning can be fairly rapid. But once we get down to maybe, say, 60 to 80 milligrams per day, this might be a time to slow down. And again, this is something that we do in our practice at Stanford very frequently, is cutting those doses quickly. But when they get down, I would say even to the last 40 to 60 milligrams is when I really try to slow down and have patients come back more frequently for office visits so that we can keep track of those opioid withdrawal symptoms. Some good tools that you could implement in your practice to actually gauge if patients are engaging in misuse behaviors would be uh, tools like this. This is the screener and opioid assessment for patients with pain revised. A cutoff score of greater than or equal to 18 has pretty good sensitivity, not as good specificity for uh, identifying aberrant drug-related behaviors. Another tool is the opioid risk tool, and the scoring is different based on males or females. Uh, and aberrant drug-related behaviors are identified in 91% of those who are categorized as high risk. And yes, there's going to be some shortcomings with any survey because uh, patients are going to be able to tell based on face validity what you are asking about. But again, a lot of this is, uh, is helpful for self-report, uh, weeding out folks that might eventually have a problem. And the last tool I'll mention is the current opioid misuse measure. So in terms of face validity, it's a little bit harder for patients to gauge what exactly you're trying to measure. It's 17 items, and it asks about their past 30-day behavior. And so a score of 9 or higher on this tool has pretty good sensitivity, again, not as good specificity, to identify opioid misuse. So what do our Canadian uh, colleagues say? This is the National Opioid Use Guideline Group. So additional indications, complications related to opioids. They talk about sleep apnea and falls. I'll just skip ahead to, to the meat of the guidelines. So one of the things that they suggest that we also sometimes do is using a controlled release medication. Um, these folks actually say to suggest to transition patients to controlled release morphine, uh, with scheduled doses at a consistent daily schedule. And one of the options that I'd want to present to you is sometimes uh, I'll wait, so I'll let the patients do kind of the majority of the initial tapering on their own. And again, when it gets down to maybe that 60 to 80 milligrams of morphine equivalents, maybe that's when I'll transition them to a longer-acting agent. And again, this, this uh, limits safety issues in terms of putting patients on giant doses of long-acting medications. Um, and this, this is just a little bit of an easier transition. One of the long-acting medications that we like to use is methadone, again, for that uh, better phys physiological and psychological withdrawal profile. So what does ASIP, the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians, say about tapering? One of the things that they mention uh, is the addition of supportive additive medications to treat the opioid withdrawal symptoms. So they mentioned using either clonidine tablets, 0.1 to 0.2 milligrams every six hours, or use of a clonidine patch. 
What I'd usually do is prescribe about the first 24 hours, I'll use the clonidine tablets while the patch is kicking in, and then they take that off and they can continue using that clonidine. And the other thing to, to remind folks is for some uh, pain indications that the clonidine in, a, in and of itself can be a good pain medication. So, but for the purposes of opioid withdrawal can be helpful as well. In terms of uh, other recommendations that may be different from what the other guidelines have mentioned, they, other, they mention other adjuvant medication treatments for opioid withdrawal. Antidepressants, so this could be uh, tricyclic antidepressants. Maybe if a patient is having trouble with sleep, you could prescribe them amitriptyline. Antineuropathics, one of the ones that I want to mention is, is perhaps gabapentin. There are some ongoing clinical trials looking at gabapentin in patients with a pure opioid use disorder to help with opioid detoxification. We found in our own studies looking at use of perioperative gabapentin for acute pain management that that actually curbs opioid use as well. So hopefully in the coming years, we'll have a little bit more data in terms of what are the best opioid sparing agents, the non-opioid medications that can complement our tapering strategies. And finally, I'll just run briefly through the CDC guidelines. Their message here is, let's continue to monitor patients. Within one to four weeks of starting opioid therapy and every three months thereafter, really continuing to look for signs, signs of adverse effects, signs of lack of improvement, signs of diversion, signs of misuse. So in a nutshell, you'll see the same themes emerging in terms of what are the interventions uh, for opioid discontinuation or tapering. They actually mention a cutoff of you know, be aware if a patient is great, taking greater than or equal to 50 milligrams morphine equivalents per day. Patients who are using opioids combined with sedatives, um, those would be high-risk categories. Patients who are no longer endorsing a benefit and actually say, I want to get off my medications, I don't, just don't know how to do this. And then our last category being those patients who've actually manifested with some sort of serious opioid event, like a, an opio a near-fatal opioid overdose. And there was actually recently a study published in um, Annals of Internal Medicine where we see there's high rates of continued opioid prescribing in patients who do have a near-fatal opioid overdose. So just another category of patients that we need to pay attention to. And again, same themes here, slower tapers for longer durations of opioid use. So if you've had a patient who's been on opioids for two decades, you can reassure them, we're not planning on getting you off your opioids in the next two months. And so this is really a long-term project, just coaxing people in the right direction. One important point that uh, the CDC guidelines mention is that in terms of pregnancy, if a patient is to go into opioid withdrawal, we have to really worry about a spontaneous abortion or a premature labor. And those concerns are probably very evident to our addiction medicine colleagues, but something also that we need to keep in mind. If your patient is pregnant and um, you are thinking about opioid tapering, it would definitely be uh, helpful to get specialist help if you're not really comfortable, if you're concerned that you might push them into an opioid withdrawal state. In terms of other uh, recommendations, they do mention that ultra-rapid detoxification under anesthesia has substantial risks, including death. It's not recommended. Um, it, there, the data is not there at this time to show that that's, that is an appropriate way to taper. So in conclusion, the safety and efficacy of long-term opioid therapy for chronic pain is still a little bit undetermined. 
but it's still an important treatment option. So my goal here is to talk to you about taking patients and helping them to taper their medications, but we want to strike a balance. We don't want to be uh, completely shutting all of our patients away from this category of medication. And opioid cessation should be con uh, considered in the context of adverse effects, aberrant drug behaviors, and lack of treatment efficacy. So just briefly, I'm going to talk about a tool that is helpful for me, or actually more of a skill that's helpful for me uh, in the context of managing these discussions around opioid tapering and, and helping me to, to keep me from feeling burnt out. And so that is the use of motivational interviewing. Um, this is a collaborative, goal-oriented style of communication with a particular attention to the language of change. And again, this is really borrowed from addiction medicine. Our colleagues in addiction medicine are very familiar at working with patients and examining, you know, eliciting what are their real internal motivations for not using their medication, not abusing drugs, and for our patients getting off of their, their chronic opioid use. And if you go online to the Motivational Interviewing Network trainers website, you can see all the opportunities. They range even from self-paced web activities to uh, beginner's courses, intermediate courses, to even one-on-one -on -one coaching. So it really is a lifelong skill, something that I've started to learn that hopefully I can um, cultivate over time. So within the context of an interview, what are the processes of MI? So really engaging in that therapeutic relationship Focusing on your agenda, so hopefully if the conversation is to revolve around opioid tapering, having the patient agree that you're going to talk about their opioid medications, evoking their motivation for change. So this is really the meat of motivational interviewing, stopping and acknowledging when a patient has some sort of internal motivation for change. I know as providers, as physicians, we have a very narrow window to talk to our patients. We have to do our charting. We've got to get out the door. But really just taking two or three minutes and just hearing the patient and acknowledging those moments when they say, I'm ready for this. I really need to do this. And then jumping on that, reinforcing those change behaviors, and then planning, planning for how you're going to get these patients off of their medications. So briefly, this is just a very broad summary. What are the tools? So we want to ask open-ended questions. How do you feel about your opioids? Affirmations. Yes, so you've come off your opioids before, so you know you can do this again. Reflections. Sounds like this is going to be really important for you for your job to come off of your opioids. And then again, listening for that change talk really acting on the change talk and those opportunities when patients are manifesting ideas that they really want to change themselves. And so there's a lot of evidence base for motivational interviewing in the context of substance abuse for a variety of indications, really to improve treatment engagement, treatment outcomes, increase medication adherence, and decrease illicit drug use. So there is a small pilot study uh, published by Dr. Sullivan and his colleagues in March 2017 in the Journal of Pain. This was a pilot randomized controlled trial of a taper support intervention. There was psychiatric consultation, opioid dose tapering in 18 weekly meetings with a physician assistant, and they did motivational interviewing during these uh, sessions, as well as learning pain self-management skills. The bottom line is it was a small trial, so Everyone actually ended up on lower opioid doses and had reduced pain severity. But again, they'll probably be conducting a follow-up trial, so hopefully we'll have some more uh, evidence base for this motivational interviewing in the future. And in this slide, I've just included 
what exactly went on during this interview. This motivational interviewing, again, is just a style of communication, but what are the bullet points? What are the things that they're focusing on in each individual session? And I think you know, there are some important principles here that we can try to incorporate during our encounters with patients to help them get off of their opioids. So with that, I'm sure everybody is on the edge of their seat in terms of, well, you know, what are the tools that we're actually going to give patients to get them off of their opioids? And so I will hand it over to Dr. Prasad at this point. Is that better? Yes, okay. So when working with individuals with pain, developing care plans for individuals with pain, one of the most important things that we have to first ask ourselves is, what are we treating, right? What we're treating plays a significant role in the pathway that we develop for our patients. And not all pains are created the same. Uh, we know that we can define pain very broadly into two different categories, acute and chronic pain. And I have a, a talk later on today, three o'clock today, that I'm gonna go into a lot more detail about the differences between acute and chronic pain. Uh, but for right now, I'm just going to summarize them to help you understand how this influences the different pathways that we take in treatment. So first with acute pain. Acute pain, uh, the pain is a sign of some sort of active damage occurring in the body. There's some sort of active tissue damage occurring. Oftentimes, it has a very clear single pathway. Um, and the treatment course is very well prescribed. Uh, first and foremost, we know with acute pain that by definition, it goes away. Acute pain isn't something that persists with somebody over the course of time. Uh, immobilization is oftentimes essential for a person to get recovery. And then lastly, medications may be prescribed. Um, Short-acting opiate medications, hydrocodone, oxycodone, these things may be prescribed. They're very effective with helping a person get to that point uh, where they're no longer suffering from the pain. Chronic pain, however, is a completely different beast. With chronic pain, we know that the pain is not associated with active tissue damage that requires some sort of immediate action to prevent more harm from occurring to the person's body. Uh, we know that the etiology of pain tends to, chronic pain tends to be a bit more complex as well. Uh, we know, for, for example, there's oftentimes very rarely a single clear etiology to the onset of pain, but we also know that a wide range of different substances, stressors, and emotional states can all influence and intensify that experience of pain, which isn't necessarily the case with acute pain. But then all these things have pretty significant implications for our treatment course. Uh, first and foremost, with chronic pain, there's no fixed endpoint. We don't have a way that we can eliminate the pain that a person is experiencing. Um, immobilization, oftentimes, while that's indicated for acute pain, that'll worsen chronic pain conditions. But when it comes to medications, there are some pretty significant differences in terms of how we manage the pharmacologic aspects of care when working with chronic pain. All of a sudden, because we're dealing with a condition that doesn't have a fixed endpoint, a lot of other variables start to take on much more significant importance uh, when working with these patients. So we're dealing with the condition, again, that doesn't have a fixed endpoint, right? So if we prescribe medications, such as the hydrocodone, oxycodone, now we're talking about a person taking these medications potentially indefinitely, right? These medications have a whole host of side effects that can come with them. A person may have some constipation, they may have some mental cloudiness, things along these lines. But over the course of time, when a person's taking the medications, they can start to develop tolerance to the drug. Right? And tolerance isn't the same thing as addiction, it's not the same thing as abuse. Now I'm gonna qualify what all these different terms are, what they mean. 
So tolerance is simply where a person needs more and more of the substance to achieve the same effect. So for example, we can develop tolerance with any type of substance. It's not unique just to the opiate medications. You know, I woke up at four o'clock this morning and I needed some coffee, right? Usually just one cup of coffee is sufficient for me, but my body over time has developed tolerance to caffeine, and so one cup of coffee really didn't do much of anything for me. I need a little bit more than that. But that's an example of tolerance where the body needs more to achieve the same effect. In the case of opiate medications, though, what we find is that even if a patient may start to develop tolerance to the aspects of the medication, analgesic benefits, they don't develop tolerance to all the side effects that come with it. So a drug that maybe caused just a little bit of mental cloudiness, something that caused a little bit of GI disruption, all of a sudden, as they start to increase their dosing of the drug to achieve therapeutic benefit, they find that they're just in a stupor. They, they can't think clearly. Memory gets affected. Uh, they start to become on bowel regimens just to allow everything to move properly. We oftentimes find that this is what starts polypharmacy. People start taking other medications to treat the side effects of their medications. Um, and we have many patients that we've seen who come in with 20, 30 different medications, and they have no idea what half these drugs are for. Um, we've seen people who come in who feel sedated by the opiate medication. So they're given a psychostimulant to keep them a little bit more amped up during the day, but then they have trouble with sleep. So they get an agent to try to help with sleep. And so all of a sudden, their body and their life cycle is being regulated by chemicals. So this is tolerance. But beyond tolerance, we also have concerns about dependence. Right? There's psychological dependence on a substance, where when you pull that substance away, a person starts to go into withdrawal. And again, this isn't the same thing as abuse. This is a component of addiction, but it's not the same. Um, and we can develop physical dependence, again, on any substance, not just the opiates. Um, you know, if I didn't have my coffee in the morning, and if I went several days without caffeine, I would start to get a headache. And that headache is uh, caffeine withdrawal, because my body's developed the physical dependence on the caffeine. But I would say what's more dangerous than physical dependence is actually psychological dependence. Is this, this is where a person perceives, if I don't have substance X, I'm not going to be able to do Y. Right? So for example, when our patients start to link their medications with activity, oh, well, you want me to go to become more active with my family activities, I'm going to have to load up on opiates before I can do that activity. That starts to become a very dangerous scenario because a patient starts to link medication use as being the only thing that allows them to perform activity. So psychological dependence is very dangerous, and it also becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If a person perceives, if I don't have so much of my medication, then I'm not going to be able to function. Well, if they start to try to, if you start to wean their medications uh, for, the, for the benefit of their own health, and they say, you know what, the doctor is weaning my medications, they have a higher level of anxiety about their functioning, a higher level of anxiety about the wean, that anxiety itself creates central changes that can actually cause their pain to worsen or adversely impact their functioning. It's not the medication change itself, but the impact of that change on that person's psyche. So psychological dependence is extremely challenging, but again, that by itself isn't the same thing as abuse or addiction. Abuse refers to people using the medications inappropriately. So for example, when you find a person who says, you know what, my OxyContin works, but it works even better when I crush it up and I snort it, right? That's an example of abuse, right? Um, other examples of substance abuse, a person who has a very difficult work environment, and they go and they start drinking more and more alcohol as a means of coping with that. That's another example of substance abuse. Substance abuse by itself also is not addiction. Right? When we get to addiction, what addiction refers to is more of a disease process where a person continues to engage in aberrant behavior, in this case opiate medication use, despite significant negative consequences. 
So let's say that a person um, is abusing opiate medications and they've gotten pulled over for being under the influence of opiate medications. They're in a motor vehicle accident. They lose their job. They have a lot of adverse outcomes that are occurring from their use of the medication, but they continue to take this drug. There's a strong reward system within our brain that reinforces the addiction process. And addiction actually has components of physical, psychological dependence, tolerance, and abuse with it. But so it's really important that when we're working with our patients that we differentiate these things because we'll have a lot of patients who come to us who are taking their medications appropriately, taking them as prescribed, but they label themselves as addicts, right? Or they get labeled by society as addicts or even by clinicians as addicts, right? And so it's important that we respect the differences among these terms because how we deal with them also differs. So what does all this mean? You know, this doesn't mean that there's no role for medications in chronic pain. It just means that we have to have a lot more caution, just as Dr. Ha presented earlier in the, in the morning. Um, you know, the pendulum tends to swing from one extreme to the next, and it's, it's, we're certainly not of the attitude that all medications are bad, we should avoid these at all costs. It really is more appropriate that we look at these things on a case-by-case basis and appreciate all the variables that are at play and approach this, again, with more caution. So... Given that chronic pain is markedly different from acute pain, we have to take a different approach when working with people who are dealing with chronic pain conditions. And what we do in chronic pain is we try to focus on development of active self-management strategies. The key word here being active coping strategies. So medication use, for example, is a passive coping strategy. All the patient has to do is swallow a pill. Injection therapies are passive coping strategies. All they have to do is lay still for the injection. Massage therapies tend to be passive uh, treatment modalities. Active treatment modalities are ones that require more initiation, more change on the part of a patient. So engaging in a home exercise program prescribed by a physical therapist, um, modifying thought processes, engaging in active pacing of activities, using cognitive restructuring strategies to change how people deal with stress. These are all examples of active coping tools. And again, in the talk that I'm giving later today at 3 o'clock today, I'm going to go into much more detail about what are these specific tools? What is cognitive behavioral therapy? What are cognitive behavioral tools? How do they apply in the realm of pain? Uh, what is relaxation training, breathing exercises? What's the science behind that? How does that fit into uh, chronic pain treatment? I'll spend more time in the afternoon talk going over that. But in a nutshell, the goals of chronic pain treatment is to focus on improving overall functioning. So we don't necessarily look at pain levels as much as we look at what's a person doing, what's a person able to do with a certain level of pain. And the goal is to try to maximize that as much as possible. So the way that this occurs is through use of an interdisciplinary team, right? Uh, physicians, nurse practitioners, uh, physi uh, physician assistants tend to focus on the medical optimization piece. Physical therapists work on the physical reconditioning, and psychologists tend to focus on the behavioral and lifestyle modification. And we know that outcomes can be very high in terms of improving functional capacity, in terms of emotional functioning, when people participate in this type of interdisciplinary care. The unfortunate thing is, is that many of the folks that we see tend not to do that, right? More often than not, what people focus on is just that medical optimization. And there's a lot of reasons for this. This is something that, uh, number one, is very easy to do, right? As I said before, a lot of the medical pieces tend to be passive treatment approaches, so they don't require much effort on the patient's part. It's a path of least resistance. And as human beings, that's what we do. We always go for that path of least resistance. We do the easier thing first. That's just our human nature. And so when a patient is faced with, okay, I either have to move these parts of my body that hurt, or I have to deal with difficult emotional stressors or change how I interact with my environment, those are very challenging things. 
versus, okay, I have to take a pill several times a day. That's a bit easier, right? And so our patients uh, go for the seductiveness of the simplicity of medical optimization. Um, but also, it tends to be what patients see. I mean, it's part of our, our social messaging that we get through media, right? I mean, think back to when we're watching cartoons, right? If you watch the, the cartoon, The Flintstones, right? Fred Flintstone hits a stone, his foot to swell up, and then he goes to his doctor, they cast it up, he may, you may see him go to the pharmacy, and later by the end of the episode, he's fine, right? These are just all subtle messages of how people think about pain. I go, I go to my doctor, something happens, magically I get fixed, and life gets back to normal. Um, even though the folks have been living with pain for a long time, that process is still there, and there's still that expectation. You know, we can, I can talk to a patient who's lived with pain for 50 years, um, and they, there may still be a part of them that's holding out hope that will maybe... Maybe one day this will all go away. They know realistically that's not going to happen, but that doesn't change that that's still there. And so the, the medical optimization part tends to be easier But what we know from the patient perspective, but what we know is that's not going to net the outcomes that we're trying to accomplish. That by itself, uh, the majority of the time, isn't going to allow us to find a person or help a person get to a higher level of physical and emotional functioning. Um, but this has implications. Uh, when a patient focuses just on the medical optimization piece of their care, it puts more pressure on the clinician in terms of what they're going to do to try to help manage them. Right? Oftentimes we see uh, clinicians who start to overprescribe medications or do uh, additional procedures despite a lack of efficacy because they have a desire to try to help the patient. Right? All the folks who've gone into pain care, people, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, physicians, you've gone into the field because you care and you genuinely want to help somebody. And when you've got a 10-minute office visit with somebody and you see them suffering, you want to do whatever you can to try to help alleviate that suffering. And that's partly how we start to see slow escalation in medications or addition of additional medications to the person's regimen. Because in part, that's partly what the patient wants. They don't necessarily want more drug. They want to have more relief, and they equate more drug with being more relief. And so that starts to influence the behavior of the clinician. And this process perpetuates over the course of time where we see that that can start to contribute itself to, again, the polypharmacy issues. We also see this contributing to uh, the frequency of prescription opiates. Uh, prescription opiates are the leasing cause of overdose deaths in the United States. And fatal overdoses involving opiates increased four times um, in the first decade at the start of the century. Um, Dr. Ha already went over some of the guidelines that were put out by APS and AAPM that put some responsibility on the prescribers in assessing the appropriateness of uh, continued opiate therapy and making changes in the regimen if this isn't indicated. So what do we do with these folks? How do we try to help them achieve a higher level of functioning? One of the most critical things to recognize is if, you're, if you decide that one of your patients is an appropriate candidate for reduction or elimination of the opiate medications. As Dr. Haas said, we need to make sure that you're communicating that with the patient, helping them understand what are the reasons for this, and at times keeping the patient involved with that discussion as well so that it's not necessarily just a decision that you've made for them, but one that you guys have made jointly together. But you have to recognize that if you're taking that away from the patients, that opiate medication is a tool that they've used to manage their pain, regardless of how effective or non-ineffective it is, that's a tool that they've used to manage their pain over the course of time. If you remove that tool and you don't give them anything else, they're not going to succeed. They're not going to be successful with continuing to wean off those medications. So we have to replace that with something else. But that something else isn't necessarily just uh, drug rotation, giving them a different opiate. It's not necessarily just adding other medications. That may be a part of it. 
but we also want to make sure that we're starting to embrace other treatments for the patient. So at Stanford, we have an inpatient pain program that's geared toward helping patients do just this. We help wean them off of their opiate medications um, and try to help them achieve a higher level of functioning, higher quality of life. Um, we bring in a wide range of patients. I'm not going to go into all the details, just in the interest of time. Um, but what happens is, on a daily basis, the patients see physical therapy, occupational therapy, and myself. And we also work with their medications through a dosage-blinded pain cocktail. And what this is is where whatever opiates they have, we typically convert this to a methadone, and we put the methadone in the liquid syrup, where the patient gets 20 cc's of the methadone or 20 cc's of this um, solution twice or three times a day, but they're blinded to how much actual opiate medication is in there. We can manipulate the dose of the medication with each, or the amount of medication with each dose. We can go up, down, or make no change, but the patient has no awareness of what the change is. They're just getting the same volume of syrup at each dosing interval. What this does is this helps to break that psychological dependence. Right? If a patient's going to wean their medications and they're used to taking five pills of drug X, and then on one day all of a sudden they get three pills, there's going to be this natural expectation that today's going to be a bad day because my medications have been reduced. But when they're blinded to that, it helps remove that human expectancy. It also allows us to look and see how truly responsive are people to these opiate medications. And what we find the majority of the time is that we're able to either significantly reduce, if not completely eliminate the opiate medications over the course of the hospital stay, and their functioning just starts to increase. But their functioning doesn't increase just because we've eliminated the medications. The functioning starts to increase because of the other tools that we've put into place. The self-management strategies, the physical therapy, the occupational therapy, and the cognitive therapies, helping them learn more about what are the different factors that influence pain and what can they do to help manage those things. How does stress affect pain? What are the mechanisms of that? And what can they do to influence that? And we give all kinds of education on these tools, and that's the part that helps patients achieve better outcomes. So what have we found? Uh, we've actually found, uh, we gave assessment devices to people at the time of admission and at the time of discharge, roughly within 24 hours of admission and discharge. And we found statistically and clinically significant reductions in depression. Uh, on all the indices of the McGill pain questionnaire, we found, again, clinically and statistically significant reductions. Um, and in the profile of mood states, uh, this is an assessment device that um, looks at mood states and puts them on six, looks at six different dimensions of mood states. And we found clinically and statistically significant reductions on tension, anxiety, depression, vigor, or excuse me, um, tension, anxiety, depression, fatigue, and confusion. We found an increase in vigor and activity, and we saw no significant change in anger and hostility. And the way that we characterize that, our hypothesis is, is that there were a lot of patients who came with a high level of anger and frustration, and as we were able to work with them, that normalized. But then there are some folks who had a high level of internalization of that emotional distress. And as we worked with them, it helped bring it to the surface so they could actively do something to work with it. And so that's what we postulate is why we didn't see a significant difference in the anger hostility. But again, all of these things are moving in the right direction. But as Dr. Ha pointed out, this doesn't have to happen only in an inpatient unit. You know, we recognize that not everybody's got uh, the SCIP program available at their, um, uh, at their disposal. So there have been studies that have looked at this in an outpatient arena, doing the same type of thing, offering interdisciplinary care to try to help a person achieve higher outcomes. And what they found is that even when you look at patients who come in who are on opiate medications, um, both this study and the second study they'll show afterward, um, both of them found that people, whether they're on opiates or not, they have similar degrees of improvement. They both return to a, a certain baseline where they have lower levels of affective distress, 
lower levels of catastrophizing, higher levels of overall activity, again, regardless of what their opiate levels were at the start. What they did find were significant differences between the groups um, at the start of treatment, where the folks with the opiate medications tended to have higher levels of pain intensity, higher levels of emotional distress. So how can you apply this in your practice? You might say, well, this is great. I've gone to a lot of talks where they talk about interdisciplinary approaches to care. That's great. I get it. But how do I do it? I don't have these things available to me. Um, if they're not within your practice, obviously, try to refer um, if you're not able to refer out, if you live in a small community where you don't have access to a psychologist or a physical therapist who specializes in pain, there are tools and techniques, strategies that you can start to introduce into your own practice where you're not necessarily becoming a physical therapist or a psychologist, but you're bringing some of those tools in to try to help advance the care of your patient. Um, you know, using a portion of your sessions, um, as Dr. Ha pointed out again, you only have so much time in your time with the patients, using a portion of that and dedicating it to education, helping the patients understand, and not just the folks who are on chronic opiate therapy, but new patients you get, people that have new acute injuries, starting to educate them on what the course of pain is, people who have transitioned from acute to chronic pain, starting the education early on in terms of what expectations are for them and what are the different factors that can feed into their pain, what can they do to start to control those things. You want to try to focus on function as much as possible. You know, in our inpatient unit, we actually have an exemption where we don't get pain scores on those patients because a pain score doesn't really mean much to us. Right? If I woke up this morning with a 6 out of 10 pain and Jen woke up this morning with a 6 out of 10 pain, if for her she said, you know what, I'm going to wake up, I'm going to do the presentation, I'm going to go to a couple of other talks, I'll do some work on my laptop in my room in the afternoon, and then I'm just going to go to dinner, but I won't do anything after that. That's her 6 out of 10. If I wake up with a 6 out of 10 and I say, you know what, I can't go downstairs and give the talk, that's it, I'm done, that number's just lost all its value, right? So what matters more is functionality. And so the more you can focus your discussions with your patients on what are you able to do rather than how much does it hurt, that can help guide the conversation and shape what the treatment pathway looks like. So again, I know that a little bit over time, I'm going to spend more time in the talk that I have uh, later this afternoon talking about what those specific mechanisms are so that you can introduce those into your practice. But thank you guys.